Hello, and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Laurel Thompson, and today we'll be speaking with Asher Lobb. He is a New York City-based DJ violinist, live performer, composer, producer, and entrepreneur who is charting a unique career path and making a name for himself through high-energy stage shows and world-class entertainment. We'll be discussing his transition from his classical background into everything that he's doing now, including the importance of dialing in your sound and the gear that you might need if you're just starting off and you're wanting to amplify. We also discuss a major setback which Asher had to overcome and the enhanced conviction and appreciation he found upon reaching the other side. Before we dive into the interview, I just wanted to read a little bit from Asher's bio. This can be found at asherlaub.com, A-S-H-E-R-L-A-U-B, and his website and links will be in the show notes. Asher began classical violin training at the tender age of two and had already performed with the Buffalo Philharmonic by age 13. Asher's expertise in improvisation across multiple genres has led him to a career as a soloist in demand, performing at venues such as Madison Square Garden, Hammerstein Hall, Lincoln Center, and across four continents. Asher has been featured on PBS, has made headlines on CNN and NBC, and has been booked to perform at special events for Google, Nickelodeon, and National Geographic. As a DJ violinist, Asher has brought his experience as a live performer and his technical prowess as an audio editing and mixing guru to countless clubs and stages. Asher is working to influence societal norms and conventional thinking about musical performance, helping to break down social and physical barriers for his fans and beyond. I hope you enjoy my chat with Asher Lobb as much as I did. If you're enjoying this podcast and interviews such as this, the easiest way to support the show is by rating and reviewing it wherever you listen. And if you'd like to support the show further, please consider sharing it with those who you think would enjoy it and benefit from it. And now here we go with DJ violinist extraordinaire, Asher Lobb. When I first started checking out some of your videos, I, it was something where you were, you know, obviously electric violin and kind of dancing around and um, big party scene, you know, maybe it was a reception or something like that. And I'm like, this is the guy who should have played the gig that I played recently. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so I'm in the, the California Bay Area. Oh, yeah. I used to go out to L.A., do events there like twice a month. For many, many years. Yeah. And I kind of miss it, but I have a family, so, it, you know, got to pay up. <laughs> just, it's just, it's a schlep, the MMTSA and stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, in this particular performance, they, it was a, an Afghan wedding, and they wanted me to transpose or transcribe this mm -hmm. YouTube video, basically. Do it like this lady on YouTube, and she had an electric uh -huh. violin, and she's, like, walking around this grand estate with uh -huh. her violin playing this traditional Afghan tune. And so okay. I listened to the video and I'm thinking, you know, musically, right? And so I'm going, okay, I can play it exactly like her and uh -huh. 
told the, the folks, the clients said, yep, uh -huh. I can do, I can do it just like the video. Meanwhile, in their mind, they're also thinking I can bring the electric violin and be wireless and be doing almost like this music video scene. <laughs> when I arrive, you know, being able to just kind of move around the event. And so when I saw your videos, I'm going, okay, I need his gear <laughs> to do yeah. this appropriately. But I'm wondering, we can, anyway, it's kind of a launch yeah, point let's, here, let's, but this is a great thing. Yeah, but, let's continue that. But know, yeah, so. I think that's kind of a great launch point. Just like, was this something that you always imagined you might be doing? Or I know how careers can be kind of organic. So how much of what you're doing now was something like you consciously sort of making decisions along the way? And you just then maybe sort of just taking advantage of opportunities that are coming your way, like in my case like i never I thought i'd be doing that right but then it's like here i am suddenly i'm in this situation so well it means that you'll probably find yourself in that similar situation very soon yeah it, it, it's 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 evolved um to the point that i'm that i'm at right now in terms of all that equipment uh sort of partially out of necessity but also out of desire to meet the needs of clients of, a, of an array of clients who honestly don't know what they want or don't know what they're doing and understandably want to see a video to kind of envision the performance that, that they're looking to book. Uh, and that's why I'm like nine times out of 10, very, very explicit about what, trying to match their expectations with, with what I'm actually going to be providing. So yeah, that's a long-winded answer to yes. I did not anticipate my doing this DJ violin production type of package slash performance style of like definitely not when I was a kid. I didn't, I wasn't even planning on doing music mm. uh, when I was in high school. That was not the intent. Hmm. So you started off classical at quite a young age, I understand. And maybe give us just a little bit of background on yeah. sort of how that trajectory went and, you know, through childhood into your teen years. And then at some point, obviously, you made the decision or <laughs> life happened, right? Well, my wife says that music chose me. Mm -hmm. uh, and it quite literally did in that it, it was paying the bills while I was in school getting other degrees. Um, and it, it's not like, yeah, I, I, could see, I could see people who were in conservatory being like, well, what the hell? But I, I mean, I pay my dues. I, I started at the age of two. Um, very in, uh, under pretty intense classical training, uh, Suzuki up until you know high school and then i was in or orchestras nonstop um in nisma competitions upstate and but the again the intent was not to be a professional musician it was to have this extra dimension to my life and kind of put it on the back burner or, or at least add it to my resume um because honestly i didn't think music not because i, I didn't want to make I, I didn't like the idea but because i didn't see music and my family didn't see music as like a viable career option, um, as most snobby PhDs tend to think. They think like, okay, doctor, lawyer, um, accountant, pretty much uh, are, are the best options for like a stable nine to five, which is kind of right. true in many ways, but we're, we're looking at a very much evolved industry and they, they couldn't have anticipated where the internet was going, et cetera. You, you know what I'm saying? Exactly, yeah. So, so yeah, it started with classical and um, you know this little margarine box string um, string serving as like 
uh, rubber bands or rubber bands serving as strings, and then kind of uh, moving through classical up until high school and looking at the jazz band while I was in the orchestra and thinking I'd rather do that and moving into improvisation, uh, taking deep admiration to performers like John Luc Ponti, Joe Venuti, and understanding that, okay, there's another dimension to violin, and I'm, I'm kind of looking to think outside of the box, and I don't just want to be a, a uh, I don't just want to be playing Paganini, not that there isn't plenty to admire in that, but sure. uh, I don't just want to be reading sheet music. I want to kind of create my own, and, and I'm looking for, part of it was ego, uh, but, but I think the ultimate driving force was uh, finding something a little more meaningful in, in creating my own my own music that, that was unique to me, that was my own expression, and that's sort of what Atlantis is an example of, so, and, and Neon Dream, sort of the merging of, the blending of typical classical to, uh, and that of uh, modern electronic music. So, in part, my intention to producing that music was a response to my classical upbringing, and at the same time, my response to people who feel like they're too cool for classical or, or classical <laughs> isn't relevant. It's like, sure. let's bring it together, guys. You know, they're, yeah. they're both relevant. And, and, and I feel like fellow musicians, like people like yourself, you know, we, we have an opportunity with the internet and the social media to kind of make it much more relevant and, and it's working. Yes, and we can put some links to those videos and songs in the show notes so people can Thank check you. them out. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, it's, you've probably experienced this, but for me, because also starting from a classical background and then at some point kind of having a similar feeling like, well, not that anyone could go and play that music. I mean, a lot of that classical music is very difficult. And uh, Paganini, maybe Absolutely. almost no one can play it, right? But yeah. but feeling like there was something in me that I wanted to express that maybe no one else could express because it was my music, right? And it's our music. Like, yeah. if we have that, then of course we want to explore that too. But um, I, I've always thought it's kind of interesting how we hear about, you know, Baroque musicians and stuff doing a lot more just improvisation naturally back then it was the tradition and somehow it's gotten to the point where it's almost like two very different camps right where the classical musicians are reading the sheet music and maybe some have dabbled i know when i was growing up there was like yo-yo ma and, and um a few others who were maybe doing some other things but yeah yeah exactly exactly vanessa may she well, was he's, one he's actually one of vanessa may oh yeah Kind of when her Genius. album came out, that was like, whoa. <laughs> and then I have no oh, idea what happened to her after that. I haven't heard about her in years. But um, but yeah, just almost uh -huh. like, like I saw those artists, just the critics and stuff being very hard on them. Like, why, you know, why would someone do this? And um, I'm just wondering, like, in your experience, have you felt like, like almost sometimes I felt like I can't almost I have to be in one world or the other basically and, uh, and it's very strange it's strange um, I'm gonna go further I'm gonna say it's frustrating um, I don't like being <laughs> categorized yeah I don't like being placed in a category um, it, it it forces me to be in the same kind of camp as what I was trying to escape in the first place I mean, naturally, as human beings, we 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 need to categorize, but uh, I don't I don't really like it. Or maybe I'm just trying to create a new category. And there's a few 
folks out there, and one of them I just met today, uh, who are, are kind of shifting things in a similar direction as I am, and that that's going to turn into a category eventually that uh, is going to be acknowledged by like the wider, I don't know, scope of music or Spotify, whatever the, the internet, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, electric violin, contemporary violin. You know, contemporary violin is pretty wide range, mm -hmm. um, but but uh, using equipment and taking sort of control of being a soloist uh, and being sort of the front and center and, and, and being the reason why people want to be there as opposed to sort of being to the side of the lead singer as, you know, the major labels have been pushing that model forever. Uh, um, you know, it's like a new concept. I think the very few people have succeeded at doing it. Again, David Gare is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Lindsey Sterling, another. And, uh, you know, there, there's like a growing number of, of musicians who are kind of showing showing listeners who would typically be listening to popular music that there's a reason to listen to the violin, to the viola, to the cello. Yeah. Uh, two cellos, another another example. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I like it. I feel like I totally like went off in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> You're sort of asking, but... No, it's fine. It's um, kind of coming back around to this idea of, I mean, it's really giving the opportunity for a wider population to enjoy not necessarily classical music, but the violin and maybe through the violin, maybe a little bit of classical music, if that's even the goal, I'm not sure. I mean, it's not here necessarily. It's, it's yeah. whatever we're creating. Right. But, um, I do find it's really interesting just in my experience, just how much of the time, more and more it's like i'm being invited to come and play violin but more pop music or more just some other genre right and, and so it's it's it really is getting yeah. a lot more people interested in the violin which i think is important and we just had a yeah the bach festival just happened close to me this big you know multi-week festival and there was this article uh that came out in the local paper talking about how like if classical music is going to survive it has to kind of get away from being so stuffy like you know yeah. they were comparing this sort of a stadium show versus a classical concert and how different the audience behaves in these situations it's like there's no real room to kind of breathe and get excited about the music and i thought that was really interesting people have to be able to relate you pretty much hit the, hit the nail um yeah. i do want to give people a reason to listen to classical and so many events that I play, they they don't want to hear it. You know, they they, they want to hear stupid pop music. Not that pop music is stupid. There's a lot of fun stuff, but but there's some really bad pop music out there, and it's you really want to hear. I don't want to mention artists, certain artists, because a fan of that artist might be listening to this podcast. But um, <laughs> there's just a lot, and I see sure. you're nodding your head because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I want, and it's it's sort of like a means, it's like a vector to get people to listen to the origins of where I came from, and uh, it's necessary. You know, you got to meet people where they're at, otherwise you 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 neglect them, and they're you're they're not going to be interested in what you have to present. Well, and then going back to you know your your family and feeling like you know this wasn't necessarily the career path that they might have chosen for you, but but that's the thing too. Um, how many classical musicians have I known where they have to get this other job because they can't pay the bills with just doing kind of the small piece of what they want to do 
and so branching out, right? And it seems like you've been able to be really successful kind of from your YouTube channel anyway, being up for pretty much anything it looks like. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, laugh, I laugh at me too because it's like I'm wearing many different hats and um, it's a lot of hard work, I tell you. Yeah. It's um, easy and then like once you delve into it, into the process of just being an independent label, I'm sure that's hard too, uh, you realize just how many, just the nature of making this a profession is so complicated and um, it's, it's really, it's a full-time job, just like any, you know, nursing, teaching, you know, being a lawyer, it's this full-time job. You know, you're, you're running contracts, you're, you're looking out for your best interests, you're, you're networking, you're, uh, learning about the industry, you're, you're making something out of nothing if you're not part of already a network and, and you're constantly learning music and developing skills and it's exciting, but it's challenging. It's really challenging. Um, but yeah, the YouTube channel is like one of many branches, you could say, um, that, that I kind of bring in listeners and I'm covering a span of Bollywood, Latin pop, uh, classical, and I'm just really trying to meet my listeners where they're at as much as possible. And that's sort of why you might be seeing an inconsistent, like, or, or a confusingly wide range of, of different genres. Makes you wonder, like, okay, well, what's his branding? So, you know, if I had a label, if I had a manager who, who had like a, who could show me how to focus on one concept, one, you know, and, and flip the bill for me, then yeah, sure, I'd do that. And if I had like, a clear vision, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I, I, I see it as my business model is my listeners and my, my clients. And I pretty much, like, within reason, I, I do reject certain subgenres of things that I just don't think yeah. fit the bill. And I do reject clients. Uh, but I I also try to branch out as much as possible. And if I see that something's within reach, I'll I'll adapt. And um, an example of that would be saying stepping out outside of the YouTube video, music video thing. I'm talking about in-person performances. Uh, I wasn't always a DJ. I, I moved into DJing because I felt like I was the best fit to be a DJ if I'm the feature performer, mm-hmm. <laughs> like as opposed to being this appendage to some DJ who doesn't even understand instrumentation and live mixes and, you know, knows how to listen to the crowd, but doesn't get the connection. And so how much of your time just to kind of give listeners maybe kind of an idea of, of what you spend your days doing, how much of your time is sort of spent um, with, you know, kind of doing live performance versus composing and um, just creating music and YouTube videos and, and this sort of thing. And then, of course, all of the business side of things, the networking and, and you know, yeah. getting gigs and, and this sort of stuff. So I'll tell you, um, it, it, it's shifted in the last five years. It started with, you might be interested, no. Um, it, it started with... with no aspect of marketing whatsoever. I was, I was pretty much, I was like somebody's bitch, you know, like that's how I felt. Like, I'm sorry <laughs> about the language, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. But Fair that's enough. how I sort of felt like, just like you call me and like, you'll tell me well, how much I should get paid and, and I'll just take whatever job you give me. And I'm like attached to, to three or four bands. Now mm-hmm. it's like, I 
more or less work for myself and I have a lot of the same people calling me, but I'm not tied down to them and I'm not afraid to say no. I'm not afraid to say that that price is too low or that gig is too far or I'm not really happy with the terms, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm able to do that because I've taken on a humongous burden that I did not before, which is essentially marketing myself and, and building my connection with fans. It's a whole other animal, and I might teach a course on it because I've just spent so much time and effort learning it because I wanted so badly to be independent from the booking agents. Yeah. And now that I'm doing it, I kind of yearn in a sense to have a manager, but, some, <laughs> but a manager who's like really dedicated to my art as opposed to dedicated to booking events I'm not passionate about, but kind of pay the bills. Yeah. It's sometimes hard to strike that, ba that balance for ourselves when we have these opportunities yeah. coming our way. It's like, well, that would be good money. Yeah, I totally feel you there. But I commend you for going independent or mostly independent at this point. And and that's I think it's a step that we all kind of take at some point when we just we want to have a little bit more control over what we're doing, right? Yeah, control over the art. It's it's a balance between control over the art and control over our income mm -hmm. and control over just how much do you want to control, and how much you want to give up. Like if you're tied down to a label, you give up a certain amount of control but you're doing some really awesome events. And I know a number of musicians who are literally doing that right now. It's like, which, how, how much do you want to control your art? How much do you want to control your fame? How important is that? How much do you want to control like your personal life? Like for me, it's a real, it's a tough life balance. Like I want to be on the road. I want to connect with fans. I also want to have a family. I also want to have a life. You know, it's, it's a, everything's a trade-off. It really it's is. It's nice to chat with yeah. you about this. Yeah, I, t I can totally relate to everything you're saying. It's, it is tough and, and almost like for me, it's, it's maybe not even month to month, but it's like maybe every six months or something. It's almost like I have to check in with myself, <laughs> you know, and just make sure like, okay, am I really on the trajectory that, that I want to be on? And of course the pandemic I think has changed a lot of things for certainly for musicians, but um, oh, for me, it. you know, in, during the pandemic, doing very different things than I was before the pandemic, or at least the trajectory has been different. Um, not that I'm doing things I've never done before, but, you know, it's just this, I'm just taking advantage of what I can do, right? And I'm, and I'm sure that, that you're kind of in the same boat, although hopefully we're coming out of it, <laughs> out of it soon. Things are getting back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. You got to roll with the punches. It's definitely yeah. challenging. And the pandemic was a total nightmare. Um, and I was, I was pretty lucky to be in the situation I was in, in a house, you know, with backyard as opposed to being stuck like in, in an apartment, which would have just infuriated me. Yeah. And I, I, my heart goes out to anybody who had to deal with that. Um, I say that especially if somebody who lived for 10 years in Manhattan, I just, I couldn't imagine. Um, it's not, it's, it's just, I don't know. I, I just think it was poorly managed, but people want to hear about the pandemic and my, you know, complaining about that, but it's it's tough, especially for the people in the music industry. I have friends who whose tours were canceled two years in a row. It was really unfair. They weren't treated properly. And it's like the SBA loans, like here's a 3% interest rate for screwing up your career or for not like giving you the proper support. And, you know, that's, it, it just, 
I, I think a lot of musicians need a support system that that does not exist, and maybe maybe that's my calling. Now that now that you mentioned, maybe there needs to be like a networking group of like individuals like us, independent musicians who who need to who need support, who who need to know that there are other people out there who are struggling in a similar sense. And I just want to know that they're not the only people alone and just kind of create a network. I think that, that maybe maybe there needs there's a need for that. Yeah, there's some little inklings of things that I hear about uh, people who need, you know, some sort of, I think through um, the Folk Alliance, I've heard some different things for, you know, people who are injured or something, they need some kind of help with um, some sort of illness or something like that. But I mean this was it was systemic <laughs> it's like all of us suffered right yeah so just to kind of feel like everything's just falling out from under us and and yeah rolling with the punches like you said you know having to figure out for me and just okay what can i do thankfully the teaching was going strong so i could just keep on with that but yeah everything else was just canceled left and right and and you just kind of see how precarious the career can be <laughs> Not that we didn't know that already. Yeah, I, I kind of knew what I was, I kind of, but didn't. I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. I take responsibility. Um, I, I ironically have a nursing degree. Uh, and that would have been the best job to have. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> but oddly enough, my wife was like, no, you're not going to go yeah. work at a hospital now. I don't want you exposed to all that stuff. And I don't want you sleeping in the hospital for a month. There was the nightmare. Yeah. The nightmare isn't being stuck in your home with your family, having trouble, you know, getting bookings because everybody's in that in that situation. So yeah. it was like an interesting way to reframe, have a kind of a reframe of that that mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. That was Absolutely. my point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, short of having some sort of government or, or larger organization helping us with a network, obviously having a network is very important. So you talked about how part of getting into this career was just you had these opportunities when you were going through school. I think some listeners might be curious just to kind of know how that started, like what sort of people were kind of reaching out to you and, and, and maybe with the intention of thinking, you know, if there's someone out there who feels yeah. like they have something to share and they could play some events or something like how did, how did those uh, kind of initial opportunities come your way? That's a good question. Um, I take it you've, you've interviewed before. <laughs> I, uh, just a few times. <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> just a few times. I, I, um, I hit the ground running really when I got to New York. Uh, I just was paying, just playing music to, to pay the bills, uh, getting through college, very expensive college. And um, so I guess I got to give myself some foresight credit. My senior year in high school, Knowing that I was going to be moving to New York to the big, yeah, Apple from little upstate New York, uh, little upstate Buffalo, Williamsville, the, the, the suburb where I'm from, uh, where those opportunities didn't really exist at the same level, I sent in a demo tape to a couple, a couple orchestras, and I started just with that. And as soon as I, I arrived, oh, so they they liked the demo and they said come work for us. And there was this like niche of some pretty successful musicians who were kind of doing what I'm doing now, which is essentially improv violin but musicians who like had a good tone good style understood chord chord structure and could also sight read so, which is sort of like this dual skill 
And, and like a lot of people, so it, it's it's a skill that I, I don't know if it's it's taught so much in conservatory, but it's I think it's an important skill, and it's a skill that I, I asked my teachers for my private instructors for years to teach me, and they did not. They, um, you know, they they told me to like read uh, Ragtime, which is it's like it's cool, but it's not the same as learning how learning chord structure and learning how to play. Um, but back to your original question, sending in the demo tape probably got me started. Sitting in a, on a couple of events for free, uh, exchange for like a T-shirt kind of thing, you know, <laughs> um, as painful as it sounds, got me started. And then then the phone calls started to come in pretty quickly uh, within a year or two. And honestly, I, I don't think I was charging as much as I should have initially, but I didn't really know because I was kind of figuring things out as I was going and the demand was there. So it was like, I'm a student and why not work on a weekend? Yeah. Why not take a couple of gigs? And um, and it sort of evolved from there. And it's like, okay, this is now the demand just sort of, what's the word? Uh, Snowball. Thank you. <laughs> Snowballed. <laughs> um, and and I, I started to think, okay, well, everybody's telling me I shouldn't make it a career, but maybe I should because it's actually paying my bills right now. Mm -hmm. and, that's sort of what happened. Awesome. So you're yeah. talking about the chord structure and figuring that out so you can kind of improvise over it. It sounds like some of these opportunities were not classical, obviously, but they were a variety of other opportunities as well, sort of maybe like sitting in with bands or? Yeah, I started playing with bands, weddings, some corporate events, and that kind of like moved into concerts as I started to kind of venture into building my own band and, you know, doing some produce, producing singles and albums and stuff like that. So awesome. that, that gave me some pretty big opportunities that I'm in retrospect, I'm kind of like wondering how it happened so quickly, but <laughs> I, was, I think cause I was just like taking every gig that came my way. Yeah, it was meant to be. And yeah, it sounded like you were just open. And I think that's what a lot of people just, they have to take that leap, right? Sometimes we can be, I mean, obviously it's like your leap from classical into playing all these other genres, like a lot of people just wouldn't even know where to begin with that. So I guess, I guess that's a question. Um, you're saying, you know, you met some other people who had some experience in that, that realm and, and, um, was it through them that you were able to kind of get some tips and some confidence to, to start to go off the page or was it you kind of had to do some woodshedding and, and just experimentation on your own mostly or? Um, I mean, I'm natural. I'm naturally pretty confident in, in performing, uh, even though I think every musician's got, what is it called? Uh, syndrome, imposter syndrome. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, sure. Oh, like he's better than me. She's better. It's like, I don't really, Everybody deals with that, including myself. Um, but I, I, I think I specifically went off in my own sort of direction to not have to deal with that discomfort. It's like, it's like why, why feel uncomfortable in your job? Why not just, just create your own brand? And it's interesting. I have a friend who's actually signed to a label, Sony, um, who told me she was on tour with Lindsey Sterling, and uh, I mean, who doesn't know her at this point? Right. And she, and she apparently she's she's admitted to having imposter syndrome, but. She was surprised. She hasn't like I don't want to mention her name because she might be listening to this podcast. But the the not Lindsay the this this mm -hmm. girl who's um, peer of mine who's signed the label. She said like she was in the string section and she's surprised at how I don't know if the word is insecure but like she how the lack of connection that 
Lindsay had with them, almost feeling like lack of confidence. Like why? Like we, we admire what you're doing. And, and you know, obviously you're you're dancing and you're and you're that doesn't take anything away from you. But but that was like the ultimate level of imposter syndrome where hmm. she should have like seen how much she she should have like just felt comfortable that she's just doing something different and the string players were just grateful to be there on tour with her and and were admiring the complexity of what she does. And I don't know, it's just like an interesting thing to hear from somebody who's been in close contact with her. But how did I get off into that rant? <laughs> talking about it is interesting yeah the imposter syndrome i mean we are maybe it's because the instrument is so close to our body you know and it's just like we're right there and we can hear all this nuance and so it just it always feels like it's not enough or something i'm not sure but probably all of us came to the violin because in some ways we're perfectionists it definitely requires a lot of a lot of skill yeah. But um, yeah, we were yeah. talking about just kind of making the leap into other genres from classical music and sort of how, I guess, like for me, how to not sound like a classical person just trying to play other genres, you know, to actually really embody yeah. if you're, you know, hip hop yeah. or if you're jazz or whatever you're playing. Well, you know, what's the toughest is forget about hip hop. Um, Middle Eastern music is like, man, when I hear some of these <laughs> Middle sure. Eastern violins, even like Bollywood violins, Mm -hmm. It's like next level awesome for me. It's like, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing to like, to hear the woodiness, the woody tone. It's like, they're not quite pressing their fingers hard enough on the string that you can just sort of hear this tension between the string and the, the wood. And it's just such a beautiful thing uh, that I, I, I'm still working on, on really nailing. And, and I get why there's a high price to pay for booking some of these Middle Eastern artists because it's like, it's, it's different than classical, but to, to spe speaking to what you're you're saying, it is a unique skill uh, that we don't really learn in the Suzuki method. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't learn it. I learned more just listening to again John Luke Ponti. Um, not so much saxophone players. I mean, you listen to saxophone players like they're playing jazz, but it's yeah. it's a different kind of animal on the violin. You really have to listen to other violinists do it and sort of absorb how they're doing the frills and the trills and like the slurs to mimic almost a pop singer in a sense. Mm -hmm. I think transcribing and uh, listening to the heavy hitters is, is, is yeah. probably the most useful way to learn that, that style. Yeah, I came from the Suzuki background as well. And I think like one benefit of that at least is that we were encouraged to listen a lot, which I know that some people who, uh, I had a few teachers along the way who weren't so much in the Suzuki realm. And so there it was like, we just want you to sight read this music and somehow the music will jump off the page or something. You know, you're, it's that interpretive, you have to build your interpretive muscles here. So at least there, you know, I can imagine that, um, you know, someone listening can hear that if you if you're able to listen, you know, and listen deeply, like you're saying, listen to all those little ornaments or you know just yeah, the nuance the nuance of all of this, you know, the vocalist and how I mean even pitch a lot of times with um, with a vocalist, right? It's it's written out on the page as an A, but are they really singing an A that whole time? Like they might kind of dip into something else, you know, a yeah. little, you know, kind of bend the note or something, but really yeah. able to listen that deeply and. And then, um, and then experiment, right? It sounds like a lot of what you've done. It's like experiment, and is it working? Yeah, it's pretty much pretty much the idea. Um, 
to be more specific with you know the more popular music the hip-hop the the jazz um and something that i honestly struggle with even after many years of, of improvising is that the vibrato needs to chill out a little bit mm, i agree you know yeah we're we're a bit tense as classical musicians and and actually if i were to have this conversation with david garrett if i ever had the privilege and, and i have huge amounts of respect mm. for him it's interesting how he really carries over his super duper like virtuosic classical skills um to pop music which again if i were his instructor i'd probably say like maybe lay off the vibrato a little bit even though like we all get it you're a virtuoso like you're amazing um nobody plays paganini quite like you but i guess that's his interpretation of of pop music i just it's not my personal preference and I'm sure if he's listening to it, which I'm sure he is, he wants to slap me upside <laughs> the head. But I, it's just, I think that the vibrato, it's good. It's good sometimes, but, it, yeah. you know, anyway, you get my point. No, I agree. And, and, you know, in the classical camp there, like, again, I had teachers who were very much into, like, okay, you've got vibrato, play it on every single note, just plaster that vibrato all the way through the piece. And then others who are a little bit more just use it more as an ornament or use it more on the notes that it really that you want to bring out more and i was always feeling like that's what drew me in more than just this kind of plastered vibrato but i mean i can understand yeah a classical performer coming into other genres like you're bringing all of this great technique with you of course and like let's let's get this music to shine with all of this but I mean, as much as, as music is, you know, notes and silence, I think, yeah, to really have that, that emotion that the vibrato can present, it's like if it's just, if it's too constant and it's too intense, right, then it's almost like it loses all of that, the kind of the soulfulness the of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, well, we, we forget, we almost forget to it. listen to it. It's just kind of there, you know, instead of like coming and going. But I mean, I would have, you know, having this conversation and talking about, yeah, I didn't really like that, you know, that performer is this or that. I mean, it's just like we're holding everyone on such a high pedestal, right? But then as we kind of go more into like, what do we want to express? Yeah, I think it's it's all totally valid. We can still enjoy a performer and, and have certain things where it's like, well, they're doing that, but I would choose this other way. And this feels this feels more genuine or something. Right. So what you're describing is interesting um, because it, back to the imposter syndrome thing, mm -hmm. I feel like it was almost orchestrated, pardon the pun, that imposter syndrome was like a desired outcome for us classical musicians to like sort of pin everybody else against everybody, pin musicians against others and like, hey, look, this is the ultimate, Etoc Perlman. That's what you want to be. And you shoot for the stars, try to be Etoc Perlman, you'll land somewhere around, you know, here. You're like, you'll, you'll end up in the second violin somewhere. And, like, that's that was orchestrated. Now we have a very different system where that isn't, like, we don't need to look at each other as better or worse. I mean, to, to a certain extent, we can tell who's skilled, who's not, who's more fit for a certain type of job, who's more, who, who knows how to, whatever play certain who's 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 a better fit for the certain certain types of genres uh but it's not it's not like this taking the traditional pathway um at least from my per perception is and that would be 
awesome because that was one of the main reasons why you know i felt like and i'll, I'll still kind of check in with myself like i said like maybe every six months and go like huh oh, do i want to audition for an orchestra do i want to get back into that world and i go no not really because <laughs> <laughs> there's so much competition you know that that uh, i guess if you can swim with it uh some comp competition is good some competitiveness but does it really support it could, the music you know it's like we're supposed to be a yeah. team here <laughs> yeah some things could when competition gets comp, competition's good there's a certain level of competition that's healthy yeah uh, but but there's a once you get to level of toxicity it's like it's not even it's not about you anymore it's about the system that's like Absolutely. brought you in and I, it's not worth playing that game in my my from my perspective yeah so speaking of um, being more fit for the job, so my, my, my gig with the Afghan wedding went fine. It was very silly. Um, I ended up having to go acoustic because I don't have a wireless setup. Uh. And, um, and I didn't know that I would have to have everything memorized so I could walk uh. around. I mean, I've done that kind of strolling violinist thing before, but for this particular mm -hmm. piece, I mean, I had it mostly memorized. So I had a human music stand who walked ahead of the <laughs> camera people as I was walking ahead of the bride and groom making their grand entrance. It was all very silly. <laughs> oh, that's but um, let's talk about gear a little bit. We'll just shift gears yeah. here and talk about gear yeah. because I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can maybe give us a little bit of um, like bare bones stuff. Like if, if um, yeah. what would be yeah. like the minimal setup that someone would need to say, play amplified in kind of a, you know, one of these settings versus like, what's, what do you like to play with? What, what's your gear okay. like? And, and mm -hmm. what, it, what if, I mean, I imagine you've experimented a lot, so <laughs> you can, I, and I'm, I'm so I don't really know much about electric violins or anything like that, honestly. So, yeah. So I, I just want to start out by saying uh, to any list, any aspiring musicians, electric violinists, whatever people want to play amplified. <clears throat> um, it's uh, it's, it's a whole ball game, and, and it's just, um, you don't necessarily need to get super expensive equipment, although I'm gonna say the equipment I have is, is in the many thousands, um, which is actually nothing when you compare it to an acoustic violin. You get a, get, get a, like a, an acoustic violin for 100,000, it's like, doesn't even necessarily sound good, but it's a collector's <laughs> item. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, that being said, um, whole other story, by the way. <laughs> but when it comes to equipment, LR Bags Pair Acoustic Preamp is, is, the, is a good option. Um, that's something I've used for years. It's, um, you know, you can get mid to higher. And if you want to be mobile, uh, you could, you know, you don't want to spend too much money. You, it's a little bit risky, but the Line 6, you get maybe in the 250 range. Uh, line 6. Oh, by the way, if you can get anything nowadays because there's a tech shortage. Supply chains and yeah. <laughs> uh, on the lower end of wireless units, you get something like that. You get a pickup um, that's with a quarter inch jack, and you stick this little thumb. It's literally a thumb. You just stick it into the jack. It sends it's the it sends a signal to the receiver, a little box unit, and that goes XLR or quarter inch into the mixing board, which goes on to the sound system. So I hope that isn't um, Swahili. Uh, that's pretty much the simplest I can get as far as wireless um, tone. Yeah. Um, it's pretty important what you're, the, the tone that you're sending. So if you get a crappy bridge um, where the pickup, or even a good bridge where the pickup is like attached to the right side 
like you slip it into the right side of the pickup. You're going to get some screechy sound. It's going to need a lot of EQ, and even then, it's not going to sound good. Because it's picking so up really too gotta, much of the high, like the high frequencies on the right side of the bridge. Yeah. And the noise from all around you. Got it. And probably bow noise uh, and stuff. And yeah. I do not recommend miking your instrument um, and like unless you have um, there. There are certain like attached mics that they can go over the bridge. They kind of hook up to your to to the side of your violin. They they go over your bridge and and they pick up a nice woody tone. But there's a little bit of a risk of feedback if it's a noisy stage or people are chatting around you. So that's why I kind of recommend a pickup, a little bit more sound control, yeah. volume control. If you want to get an electric violin, so that's acoustic electric pickup. Right. Are there, electric... So so you talked about the LR bags, and and so is that the also the pickup that you recommend as well? That is one. That is one example of of a, a reliable pickup. Mm -hmm. um, and preamp. Um, there's the Fishman pickup, which is also pretty reputable. But I think there's a preamp, which is pretty reputable. There's a pickup, fish and pickup that's like okay, but um, you know you typically like go to a place like Sam Ash or the Electric Violin Shop. They have a lot of good information for you. Yeah. Um, I just don't think it's worth cheaping out on equipment, but I do understand why people do cheap out because they want to kind of bring in the money first before they invest. But um, so I do, I do see that perspective. But sometimes um, you need but, to get the gig so you can get the money. So yeah. <laughs> it's a trade-off. Yeah, I've used mostly Again, like mini condensers and stuff like that because I like the sound of it. Um, yeah. But then, of course, for roaming around and do like, doing like a strolling violinist thing, the feedback situation is pretty yeah. risky. So Yeah. Uh, and honestly, even with the level of equipment that I have to support my acoustic electric hookup, um, i.e. my acoustic violin being mic'd, Mm -hmm. Um, there's still a risk of feedback if you're playing with a band, uh, Once and it, gets it happens. Enough. Yeah. What's that? Once it gets a certain, uh, the, the volume gets level a certain volume. level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But even just standing in front of a speaker, even if you're just playing with your tracks, there's just, it's not worth it, especially like, and if you're, in your case, if you're playing a ceremony, the last thing you want is for people like that could literally kill you, uh, in terms of, um, make or break your next gig, uh, yeah. if you don't have the the proper equipment, but, um, but I have an electric violin that I, I was resisting not bringing on a Tavri event, but now I probably play it more than quite a bit more than the acoustic that's yeah. sort of evolved over the years because I've managed to create a sound that is very close to studio quality acoustic violin, which is, that's awesome really not easy to get and again it took me about 18 years to get there <laughs> wow um, and a lot of experience in the studio yeah uh, now i'm i actually enjoy my tone playing i i hated the electric violin um and, and the tone for many many years until recently that's always so been I, my yeah my thing it's just like i love the sound of my acoustic violin so i just don't want to yeah. sound like this you know it just kind of yeah. sounds like i'm closed in or kind of muffled or something and yeah, there's just it's a different sound. So you've been able to EQ and and just work with different um, options and These stuff the you have there. Man. Yeah. So, and let me tell you, when if you go on, if you're on like a big job where there's like a hot shot um, studio mixing ma ma 
mixing what why am i why is the word escaping me probably because i haven't slept in a week um <laughs> engineer studio engineer yeah running the bandstand like nine nine out of ten are like mediocre like they have all the equipment but they're really not they don't know how to and i know because i've checked out i've checked out like the preamps and the stuff that they're that they're doing to before my my audio my track goes into the system and i've gotten to the point where i just learned it myself because i couldn't take it anymore mm -hmm. like I, my sound would be great going through like a, a qsc amp but then i would show up to some half a million dollar production and the sound was like Ugh. yeah and i go to the frustrated and i look at the the engineer i'm like what did you do to my sound like why are you putting on limiters and compressors that are just like squashing the tone yeah and now i say don't do anything yeah just take the tone that I'm giving you. So Good for you. Yeah, it's it's really I've had a lot of yeah, very unfortunate experiences like that too where it's like I almost have to imagine what I normally sound like and just hope that going out into the audience it actually sounds like that. <laughs> cuz it's, it's just it could be pretty bad. Like it can it can really kind of derail your show cuz if it's just sounding yeah. so bad, right? And it's not fair to you. No. As a musician. And I and and I and it's frustrating and yeah. it's it makes, yeah, it, it's, you slept out there, you got hired, they anticipate a certain level of performance and it makes you look bad. And it's like, it's all in the, the engineer. Yeah. And it's, it's just not fair to you. So um, to, to make your life simple and to anybody out there, like get a, you know, if you have an acoustic instrument and you can't get a good tone out of the electric, which is, it's hard. It, it sounds like rubber unless, unless you're, 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 unless you're fixing it up properly. Um, just get an acoustic, hook up, a, hook up that wireless, go into a preamp or just go wireless into the board and, and tell them not to raise your mids. Okay. <laughs> Don't raise your mids. <laughs> Don't. That's, That's kinda, what they do all the time. Yeah. And it's wrong. <laughs> well, it's like kind of the nasal sound, right? Like it kind of gives it like this. They think that a violin is a guitar, is a, is a saxophone, is a vocalist. Mm. It's not. All right. Well, so, um, if you have time for one more question here, maybe. Yeah, I do. And hopefully that was helpful. I think so. I think so. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that I, I know I've certainly had colleagues who we have a wedding gig or something. And I say, do you have do you have a pickup or do you have something we need to be amplified? And they say, oh, no, I don't. And so then I have to scramble with, you know, a mic stand or something like that for them. But yeah, it's like I feel like everyone at this point certainly coming out of the pandemic and just like you need to just you need to get the gig so like just having something that at least will yeah. work it might not be you know the most amazing thing but at least just the basics i think would be very helpful to just so have that in you your don't pocket look bad yeah yeah exactly have some control well, over your sound you before you continue sure that um you know it's one thing to be it, it, it i've i've had that experience where it's just been so frustrating mm -hmm. playing wedding because the engineer was like just messing up your tone um, or the DJ or whatever, but I played concerts where it was actually infuriating because this either there wasn't a sound check and it was totally unfair what they did to my tone, or there was a sound check and they had no, they were not paying attention. And it's like, now that's why I have my own rig. I literally, so, but you can't even depend on these major venues. Like I played Madison Square Garden, Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall was, was good. Madison Square Garden was like, Eh, really? Like, wow. Totally not cool. And I went to the engineer. I'm like, you made me look bad in front of thousands of people. Oh. And I had to re-record 
for the actual DVD release. I know. And it was not my fault. Yeah. Um, I know when it's my fault, this was not my fault. Um, and raising the gain too high, like you need to gain yeah. stage properly. Another another concert I did where it was like, you know, the, the um, I don't want to talk your ear off, but I'm just saying it's one thing to be at a wedding with, with like 200, 300 people. It's another thing to be in front of 7,000 people. Absolutely. And, and like, even that can happen. Just, you know, I mean, that happened at a festival where actually, thankfully, going out to the audience because, um, you know, people were taking cell phone videos and stuff like I could see yeah. that after the fact and know, OK, yeah. actually, it sounded good out there. But like the monitor mix was, was so was terrible and it was just like I had to block out that monitor mix in my mind and just forget about it. I mean, I should have maybe just had them even turn it off or something, but then I wouldn't have hurt myself. So I don't know, you know, it's just like one of these things. And, and uh, I've had the experience of like sound check was good, but then for some reason during the actual show, something got changed and now it's not good, yeah. right? How did that yeah, happen? That, that happens all too often. I don't know if I it's know. like they're raising the volume, it's, it sounds really good when the sound check is low. It's just you and one other instrument. And then like the whole band plays or the string section plays. And it's like, what? What happened? Yeah. What happened? And it happens all the time. Um, or it has, ha you know, now it's like, now I play an event and I hear the mix and I'm like, wow, that sounds like crap, but my tones is pretty damn good. <laughs> and I'm really glad that I, you know, did that. I'm, I'm not sorry. It sounds like I'm gloating. I'm just, I'm trying to say that but to My invest in your the engineers literally crapping on the sound. Yeah. And it's not anybody's fault. It's not your fault. It's not the performer's fault. Yeah. Um, and it shouldn't be the performer's responsibility to give them a top notch tone. They should be able to give them a raw tone and they should be able to mix it properly. Yeah. But since that's not, as we see, not always the case. Yeah. Having, having, having it worked out so you can be in, more in control is, but give me you know, preamp as an yeah. example of where, yeah. you know, you can sort of fight that a bit. Yeah, I think I have played through LR Bags preamps before and they have all the they have all the EQ right on there, right? Yeah, they're pretty yeah. good. I would I would get the one that's the nine volt. Um, if you get the one that's battery powered, you could potentially go out during a gig. But I'm just saying like it's reasonably priced. And if it like gets stolen or lost or something, it's like, what, 200 bucks or something as opposed to a thousand bucks. Yeah. Have you ever worked with DJs? A little bit. Yeah. Have you ever worked with them where they plug you into their board mm -hmm. as opposed to into into a dedicated mixer? Well, I'm not actually sure. So yeah, what's uh, what's your experience so with that, this? That, that's something, <laughs> if you're playing even once or twice with them and you're gonna okay. anticipate getting other phone calls, it's worth kind of understanding that. Okay. The, uh, and it, it, you're supposed to be getting an instrumental mixer. If you're right. being booked by a DJ or a client, you should be telling a client, like, I need an instrumental mix, mixer. Like they're providing sound, there are different channels in the mixer. There should be highs, lows, mids. It's not so much conducive. The, the DJ controller that the DJ is playing out of, they may have an input for you, but it's not really meant for an instrument. Oh, yes, this has happened to me before, but, but I've thankfully, when I've talked to them, I've sort of gauged the situation and yeah. ended up not doing that because <laughs> it didn't sound very good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, actually very recently there was someone and they said, yeah, we could just plug you in, but there's nothing. It's like you're basically just going into the speaker. And I'm like, I don't think I want to do that. That sounds risky. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah, I know what you're so talking about. So what did about. you do? I brought my own little, I have a Fishman Ladbox amp. Yeah. I just brought that. 
But how did you compete with a huge sound system? Well, this was thankfully, this was a wedding. This was a wedding where I wasn't actually playing with, it was the DJ who would be starting later, like actually doing, you know. So I wasn't actually thankfully playing along with um, any, you know, recorded tracks. But yeah, no, if that was the case, then I, I don't know. I, I, we would have had to figure something else out. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a tricky situation. There are probably a ton of other string players, musicians that specifically string players, because saxophonists can be heard even without being mic'd. Sure. But string players, they, they, they really depend on the system that they're plugged into. Yeah. So absolutely. there's probably a lot of people out there like ringing their, pulling their hair out um, <laughs> because there's this mismatch between DJs and they don't feel obligated to provide sound. It's like I'm being booked by the client and the, this guy's an appendage, this girl's an appendage. Um, there needs to be more of a culture of, you know, we're deserving of a good sound. We're also booked by the client. This should be worked out and it should be like this universal understanding that, you know, if, if you're hiring a musician, it needs to be, this communication needs to be clear. Yeah. And yeah, you have a right to a good tone. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, in having this conversation, it's very clear to me why you would want to, and then earlier, you know, you saying how, like, you know, you're, you're doing this all for the client, right? You want it to be a good experience for them. So, you know, if you're not having a good experience with the DJ and then it's, you know, not as good of an experience for the client, like, of course you become the DJ violinist, right? (laughs) So I've had situations where the DJ would just be completely oblivious to the fact that they're working with another professional and they should like be respectful of that. Mm. And they're not like the only person performing. And I would, I always have my sound system in the car just in case these types of situations arrive. And I say, okay, like, I don't want to like nag you, but if there's no way for me to get a proper tone, I'm going to have to schlep my sound system in. Yeah. It's not going to look good um, breaking down and setting up. Yeah. So sometimes when you mention that, it's like, okay, oh, let me accommodate you. Let mm. me provide a proper input instead of like an RCA input, an XLR, a quarter, and something that's actually meant for your instrument or your, your amplifier. Yeah. Just like you said, rolling with the punches, you just have to, you have to yeah. make it work. So yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting more in control of your own sound. And well, before I ask just one kind of final yeah. like piece of it, um, do we have any like really, cause we've talked about quite a few like, like disaster gigs. Do you have like a favorite, like your favorite yeah. gig of all time that was just amazing and awesome. <laughs> You'd um, remember, you'll remember it forever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm putting a damper on everything. This is probably one of the hardest weeks of my life, actually, <laughs> which is probably why I'm getting a lot of negativity for me. But no, um, it's fine. I mean, people need to be aware, you know, if they're going to step off of, you know, out of their orchestra pit or off the orchestra stage. People. There's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of of other factors that we're not going to learn in our violin lessons, you know, about how to get a good tone with amplification. So no, thank you for all of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to sort of shape the culture of like the event space and, you know, us musicians. But uh, to answer your question, yeah, I, I don't have done, done a lot of funny events, and a lot of cool events, probably done close to 2000 since 2001. Um, and everything's really been different. Um, I don't know. I love going out to Maui last month. It was like, it was really, just, I, there's something just exciting about playing on a big stage with massive, uh, um, video screens and um video video walls i just i Mm. I don't know it's just a larger than life kind of performance but uh i i really enjoyed my carnegie hall performance that was kind of very deeply touching 
very much deeply moving. Uh, the audience really connected to my story. And uh, Master Theater, I'm going to say, was pretty awesome. Uh, just going out to the crowd and um, showing them like what a violin is capable of doing, like rocking out to Neon Dreams, my, my single, uh, probably one of my singles that I'm more proud of, most proud of in terms of its success. You know, I'm going to like regret, like at the end of this interview, I'm going to regret not mentioning XYZ gig. That's, that's sort of <laughs> I know, it happens to all of us. Oh, I should have said this. <laughs> yeah. The time yeah. I almost got mugged. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, um, which actually actually did happen once, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did for another time for another interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so playing on these big stages and stuff and, and presenting your own music that's amazing. Like, were the fans already there? Like, they were already really pumped for your music, or or did you get to kind of it's like almost like warm them up and then it well, there, there were there was like an MC that. Okay. Warmed them up for me. Okay. Uh, which was pretty cool. Um, so you got to kind of launch, launch a, on stage. Yeah, but there was an awesome crowd, and Good. I love awesome crowds because they're awesome. Yeah. Um, playing with Griffin, who's uh, he's like a major label uh, act, uh, DJ, but also like guitarist and drummer. So he sort of like brings in other instrumental elements. When he introduced me, just coming out on stage it was just such a high. Like people screaming their heads off. And I knew it wasn't real, like, cause I just thought, I saw like these people are crazy, like they're like, like I'm not, I'm not Lady Gaga, I'm, <laughs> I'm like I'm known, but I'm not like, but it was it was pretty surreal, and and um, it, it it was a good feeling, you know. I, I don't think it was a healthy feeling to get at, you know, but I kind of get why people sort of chase that type of career, that kind of high of getting yeah. it. Yeah, it was. It's anybody would get that sort of high just experiencing that level of like intensity of excitement to have somebody walk on stage but yeah again again i'm i'm very much grounded i got a family i you know i see this as a job as a career i'm, I'm most interested in not the highs as much as like connecting with fans and making music to really uh you know make them happy and, and yeah looking for kind of consistency in my career more so than you know the the mega productions Nice. And, and just, I wanted to just talk about a final piece, because I understand that about eight years ago, you had uh, some issues that you had to overcome just with um, like, like health and, and yeah. yeah, being able to overcome that and get back to where you are today. So um, I just just wondering if you'd be open to talking a little bit about that and, you know, how that happened, how you're able to overcome it and kind of get back, get back to where you are. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, it's always therapeutic to talk about it. Um, a lot of people, I think, having gone through my situation probably wouldn't feel as comfortable, but I, it, it's a bit, um, I guess it's a way for me to cope uh, with, with the pain of my past. Um, and uh, it's still painful in many ways. Uh, just, just whatever, the left, just the, the not necessarily knowing where my health, where the direction of my health, health is going and to have to constantly be vigilant about my health uh, yeah, about, about seven, eight years ago, I, I ended up in a wheelchair for many, for many months, and I um, just I lost my career, as, as you mentioned, and I didn't have the strength to lift the instrument to even to be productive. Pretty much a, a vegetable. Wow. And uh, scary as hell, have, have again have a family. Um, my son's two, two at the time, mm. but I, I made uh, I made it out of that that very difficult situation, and it wasn't expected that I would, which mm -hmm. is even more bizarre. 
Um, and, 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 and having done so, I stopped caring. I, I started caring less about other people's perception of what I should do with my life. And, uh, I, in a set, in a certain sense, well, I wouldn't really want to go through that phase again. Um, in a, in a certain sense, I, I am grateful for that experience and in, in, in the way that it shaped my outlook and the realization that life is extremely short, um, from the way I see things. And um, it's, it's pretty important to live life to your fullest and just try to make other people happy and leave a positive impact and uh, on, on folks. And uh, I guess that's why I chose to just stick with music, uh, where it wasn't necessarily the most practical route to, to take. But coming back to it and having that gratitude for, for what you didn't know if you could do again, right? And, and that is exactly why I wrote the song Gratitude. Perfect. We'll have to put that in the show notes too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was this like a, like a, like a overnight sort of situation or was it kind of a gradual deterioration where just you didn't you gradually didn't have enough energy to really keep up or it was both. Yeah. Um, which is, which is going to make you like, huh? Both. How could it be both? Um, I had, I was the only guy in the orchestra, uh, in high school, uh, who had difficulty holding the instrument in a sustained manner. And I didn't think much of it. And I, nobody was there to help me or to guide me or to tell me that's weird. That's wrong. There's something wrong with that. And then I was diagnosed with an inflammatory condition, um, probably maybe around 20, 2006, 2007, okay. um, if I'm remembering correctly, nothing was done about that. And then I, you know, progressed and I just wasn't able to do gigs effectively. I wasn't just, you know, wasn't able to hold the instrument. Uh, I was in just chronic pain and, uh, and then it just, uh, advanced. Uh, to pr progress to uh, adrenal sufficiency. Little hints of, of that something was wrong along the way, but kind of like, like that rain barrel, or barrel effect or something where eventually it's just like the last drop goes in and yeah. everything's overflowing and it's just, yeah, you just you can't keep up with it. Yeah, so yeah. just a little bit about your process getting back. I mean, it sounds like maybe reorienting kind of even how you held the instrument or your setup there or strengthening um, your body strengthening my body I, I went to like a year and a half of physical therapy while while i was in nyu because i was just it was it got so debilitating wow and that helped a lot and what was what was crazier was like my own physical therapy has sort of like she she kind of like rolled rolled her eyes at me like not realizing that i actually saw her like rolled her eyes when i was asking like, is there something wrong with me? Um, which was like yet another kind of way to kind of blow me off. Like, oh, it's all psychological, and mm. um, and and everything's psychological. But I mean, if I were to go back to her today and say, hey, take a look at my medical records, you should feel bad. Like, yeah. don't don't always judge people that. Oh yeah, oh it's just in their head, and it's like it's not necessarily in their head. Um, it could be something like metabolic, or or um, or hormonal, or or imbalanced nutrition, or whatever it is, or, or inflammatory, and just don't don't always judge people, you know. And, and we, we do that a lot in this society. And but I completely digress because I kind of wanted to talk about that because it was just it felt good to share with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, so I regained my strength through physical therapy and um, nutritional rebalancing. Um, yeah, I mean meditation always helps, but it it, it went just so far for me. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, you can't just say, okay, oh, just like be less anxious or like calm down. Like that doesn't, 
It's not, it wasn't so. Yeah. Oh, oftentimes, yeah, it has to be multifaceted, right? Yeah. It, yeah. It's an adjunct. I don't yeah. know. Um, the other thing is, uh, yeah, repositioning. Uh, I, I get hater comments on my social media sometimes <laughs> when I'm, I'm uh, holding, when I, I, I don't hold my instrument on my, under my chin because uh, mm. it's an electric violin, actually. It's, it's, it's naturally heavy. Right. It's a heavy instrument. And you hold it under your, your chin, it, it puts a tremendous amount of strain on the curvature of the back. Yeah. Uh, the neck, as you know, yeah. as a musician. And I kind of like, I can't chase everybody down and explain things, but I'm so much better off because the alignment is at least straight and I mm -hmm. could still play fast. And like, there isn't any harm in doing that. And people, you know, people call it sacrilegious, people from certain camps. And I, I don't see it that way. Uh, <laughs> I don't see it as class sacrilegious. Uh, if I were playing a, a classical instrument with an orchestra, um, I would hold it under my, under my chin. Yeah, and that um, instrument's right. a lot lighter. The, I mean, the, the the electric instruments I've picked up are very, very heavy compared to the acoustic instrument. Yeah. Yeah. So I would recommend anybody who's looking to play an instrument, an electric violin, and they're really passionate about it, and they have the money to spend, go for like a Mark Wood, because it literally addresses what I've been complaining about. Like the my viper life. that's strapped to your chest kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And then your head's completely free. Mm -hmm. Some people don't like the look. They think it's cheesy 80s, but, um, you know, there, there are ways to support yourself. Or you could just strap, like for me, I have uh, an Aurora. You could strap like a TheraBand or something around your cross, your neck, under your arm, and around like the shoulder, the, sh the chin rest. Sorry. <laughs> I think I, yeah, I think I saw that in a couple of your videos. You had kind of a setup yeah, there. It's, it's helpful. It, it saved my back. Well, and that's the most important thing. I mean, <laughs> you can have perfect, you know, what other people think is perfect posture, perfect, you know, uh, technique and stuff. But then if you're in incredible pain and then you can't play for very long or you just can't play at all, like, what's the point, right? Yeah, so, pretty much. I'm glad you, yeah, you found your way back out of that. And Thanks. gosh, I was, yeah, some of the videos I was checking out, like you had a Michael Jackson video there where you were, I was very impressed. You're like doing these dance steps oh, along with the violin. And I don't know if that was pre or, or post this incident, but just a lot of, a lot of great stuff for people to check out. Thank you so much. Yeah, that, that was, um, well, I do, I, I, I have some videos post, I'm trying to remember if it was pre, it's been a number of years. I think it might've been, I think it was post. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I thank you so much for, for mentioning that. And uh, uh, that, that merging like the, the, the string, the string performances with dancing, which is sort of like a bit of my past as a doing gymnastics was something I really enjoyed. And you've got a few, like you're doing that. You, there's the break dancers around you and then you're doing yeah. like one, like a one handed handstand and yeah, yeah. You, you're not playing violin at that moment, but the violin's in your hand and gosh, I mean, how do you even, did you have like a choreographer or a dance instructor to kind of help you with that? So, so with the different performances that I, that I've done over the years, uh, I've worked with a number of choreographers. They've helped quite a bit and uh, some really talented dancers. Um, Honestly, I sort of slowed down with the dancing violinist thing, even though I still do it. Like, I, I don't look to do it as frequently because, like, am I going to be doing, I, I just, I'm just picturing myself trying to do this when I'm 60 or 70. Sure. <laughs> just seems a little insane. <laughs> you know, it's like really yeah. stressful and really, like anything can happen. Like, drop your instrument. Yeah, kind of do it a little bit less. But I still, I still dance and yeah. I still do so many flips. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you looking forward to? 
Um, Other than sleep, it sounds like. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing my kids. I'm looking forward to this gig that I have in about 30 minutes. Um, awesome. You know, I, I love I love the music. I'm looking forward to uh, to collaboration. I, I love collaborations, and and they don't always work out um, the way that I want. Like it's not always easy to find like a good person to collaborate with. But I'm working with a singer who's out west and who's in LA, and another singer who's like Midwest. Both really talented, and and we're you know trying to get out two more singles and I'm always looking for new people to collaborate with. So that's something I look forward to and new originals. So, yeah. And so what's the best means for people to get in touch with you and check out your stuff and yeah. So, uh, Asherlob is the easiest way to find me. Um, I think I'm the only one in the country. So Asherlob.com, Asherlob on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Um, Facebook is Asherlob music. Spotify, iTunes, Deezer. You get the point anywhere, any main, any streaming platform, just search my name. Awesome. And your latest single and music video is Atlantis. Atlantis, that's right. And, and awesome, like drone footage of, I guess you're in you're in Maui there, right? Yeah, it was Maui, Hawaii. Yeah. And, and you're just, um, you, you, you just have this really nice laid back kind of, you can tell that you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. actually burning my skin off because it was oh, so no. hot, but, but it was, <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy just the whole experience of going out there Wonderful. and um, just producing the song, and I hope people enjoy the song because it's it's uh, near and dear to me that song. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for sharing, and thanks for having me. I hope you have a good gig today. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I hope so too, and and I, I really appreciate just coming on the show and and just chatting with you, shooting the breeze. Yeah, hope we do absolutely. It again. Yeah, we covered some good some good topics. I'm sure there's many more we could cover. <laughs> Thanks again to Asher Law for sharing his experience and tips with us. I could relate personally to a lot of what he was discussing, as I'm sure you gathered. And after the fact, I was reflecting on the piece about imposter syndrome. It is a rampant problem. It's something that I've dealt with and many of my students, many of my colleagues, this feeling of being enough, wondering, are we good enough? Am I just kidding myself? Am I doing enough? Am I practicing enough? Will I be enough? <laughs> it can be really debilitating as well. And so many of us struggle with performance anxiety. We find it hard to take that next step forward because we're always questioning, will this be good enough? And I was just thinking about the classical world versus sort of the entertainment world that Asher's involved in and how different the performance goals can be. I can't speak for everyone, but for sure, I've noticed a lot of times in classical performance, there's not really much focus on the audience and presenting a program that the audience necessarily wants to hear. That said, there are a lot of orchestras who program a pops music concert within their season or a movie themes concert within their season, just trying to reach a broader audience and presenting this sort of music as almost a gateway drug to more traditional classical music. But even there, the way in which the concert is presented with the tradition and seriousness that goes often hand in hand with classical music, it may be a turnoff to quite a large population who don't necessarily understand the historical context in which these traditions have evolved. And in some instances, it may almost seem as if the audience is there to simply bear witness to a performer's 
rather lofty goals of doing justice to some imagined perfect rendering of a piece or do justice to Mozart or do justice to Beethoven or Brahms. And all of that is fine, of course, but I wondered what would happen if instead classical musicians and all musicians were to focus more on the audience like Asher was talking about, his clients, his fans, he's playing to them. And of course we're artists, so we also have ideas about what we want to present. But if our focus is on something that is rather intangible, such as being better than the next person, being as good as our idol, doing justice to the Baroque era, how much stress does that cause? And instead, what would happen if we were to shift our focus to a goal that's right in front of us, making these people who are listening to us happy, joyful, transported from their day-to-day life for an hour or two. I was thinking back to the feeling of giving a gift as a child and how joyful that can be versus sometimes being an adult and especially if you are really concerned about who you're giving the gift to, if they're going to like it, if they're going to like you, how's it going to reflect on you, kind of all goes back to you, but you're giving a gift to someone else and And that can be so stressful in those situations. I remember a couple times being in new relationships and it's like that first Christmas or that first birthday and it's like, I've got to get the perfect gift for this person. Rather than just thinking, you know, I love this person, I want to give something that this person will enjoy and just giving for the joy of giving. And I think we can maybe take that into any type of performance. Most audiences really are not judging us as harshly as we're judging ourselves and we're judging the other musicians in our sphere, for sure. Depending on where you are in your musical journey, your audience may be your grandparents or your spouse or your children or your grandchildren, or maybe it's a huge stadium audience or a big concert hall audience or something in between. I wonder how that may shift the stress of this imposter syndrome, and just the overall level of performance and the quality of community that performance can build. Asher was talking about the high after a great show, and I've certainly experienced that as well. With a great audience, there's just this intimacy and connection that you feel, even though you don't know anything about most of these people or any of these people, but this energy building and this feeling of sort of a transcendental moment and a magical moment. And this can happen just as much in classical music, but I think kind of the stuffiness that we were talking about hinders this oftentimes. And the concern that is probably in every person's mind in the orchestra of, am I good enough? Is someone going to find me out? It's really unfortunate because classical music is amazing. Its depth of sound and its level of emotional content, complexity and variety. But we need to sort of get past this piece, I think, that is holding us back from truly enjoying ourselves and maturing as artists and from connecting with our colleagues and our audiences. So that was just one element that I was mulling over after the fact, as well as how nice it was to chat with someone who is really hustling and doing a variety of things in music, 
bringing things together and making it work, making a career for himself. I think we all need to think outside the box a little bit more sometimes and just be open to experimenting and exploring and saying yes. And then sometimes we say no. (laughs) But just figuring out what we like and not letting ourselves be held back by preconceived ideas about how our career is going to go and what we'll enjoy because we never know. Sometimes something that we thought wouldn't be our taste actually becomes one of the things that we most enjoy doing. So the intro music that you're hearing today and the between music that you're hearing today is Care of Asher. This is one of his tracks titled Dreaming Awake. We can definitely notice his jazz influence coming through here. And at the very end of the episode, we'll hear a bit from his track Neon Dreams, both tracks being very high energy. I think Neon Dreams has these just really joyous moments, both tracks very danceable, as well as these moments of introspection and um, more calm (laughs) so anyway but very high energy so hopefully you're not listening to this right before bed please also head to the show notes and check out the links to his latest single release atlantis and the music video that he shot to go along with that so again you can follow asher from his website asherlaub.com a-s-h-e-r-l-a-u-b I will have that link as well as links to his recent music videos and his Spotify in the show notes. And again, I am Laurel Thompson. You can find me at laurelthompson.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N. Please email me if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, particularly suggestions for a Violin Geek podcast or Violin Geek blog episode or post. My email is laurel at laurelthompson.com and that will also be in the show notes. Please also check out the Violin Geek blog, which you can access via the Violin Geek tab on my website. Since the last podcast episode, I've had a few posts, one notable one being for parents who are wondering when they should enforce proper technique with their young children and when they should let it slide. This was a question from a mom with a I think it was a four or five-year-old. Anyhow, although perfect technique would be wonderful all the time, we need to balance creating a joyful atmosphere for especially young children to learn about music. And if we are too strict, then that might turn them off. So anyhow, I have some ideas in that blog about that, which could potentially be helpful for older students and for teachers as well. I hope everyone is having a good start to their fall, and until next time, happy practicing.